Welcome back, my friends, to the Religious Studies Project. I'm your co-host, David Robertson. I'm his co-host, Chris Carter. And this week, uh, you're also the interviewer. <laughs> I am. Because we have an interview with Augustin Fuentes on the topic of why do we believe from uh, evolution, primates and the human niche. Something very interesting. Belief and evolution. It's going to be controversial. Let's find out. Humans can see the world around them, imagine how it might be different, and translate those imaginings into reality, or at least try to. Humans believe. Meaning, imagination and hope are essential to the human story as our bones, genes, and ecologies. Neither selfish aggression nor peaceful altruism dominates human behavior as a whole. We are a species distinguished by our extraordinary capacity for creative cooperation our ability to imagine possibilities and to make the material, our powerful aptitudes for belief, hope, and cruelty. So begins the abstract for the Spring 2018 Gifford Lecture Series at the University of Edinburgh on the topic, Why We Believe, Evolution, Meaning-Making, and the Development of Human Natures. And I'm joined today by the uh, deliverer of those lectures, uh, Professor Augustine Fuentes, who's the Edmund P. Joyce CSC Professor of Anthropology at the University of Notre Dame. His research delves into the how and why of being human, ranging from chasing monkeys in jungles and cities to exploring the lives of our evolutionary ancestors to examining what people actually do across the globe. Professor Fuentes is interested in both the big questions and the small details of what make humans and our closest relatives tick. And his recent books include The Evolution of Human Behavior, Race, Monogamy, and Other Lies They Told You, Busting Myths About Human Nature, and The Creative Spark, How Imagination Made Humans Exceptional. So first off, Professor Fuentes, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Oh, I'm very glad to be here. <laughs> and you've been getting all of the weather in Edinburgh. It's sunny at the moment. When we recorded last week, um, we were snowed in, so um, <laughs> you've had all of that. In fact, one of the lectures was, was cancelled uh, and then rescheduled, so I missed it. Yeah. So you, you can fill me in on that one. It, it'll be online soon, I think, is the video. So. Exactly. And we'll link um, in this podcast uh, page when it goes out to all the lectures. So you, everyone who's listening, um, you can hear and watch the full six lectures of the series. Um, when I pitched this interview to you, I said, uh, the combination of your expertise in human evolution, ethnoprimatology, and human nature will, and the interaction between that and the study of religion more generally would make for an excellent and important interview. So uh, <laughs> now we're going to have to live up to that. Uh, um, well, humans love a challenge. <laughs> exactly. Um, but first of all, if you could just tell me a little bit about who you are. I mean, I've done your, your academic um, sort of uh, CV there, but who you are, how did you get interested in these questions of belief? And uh, as an ethnoprimatologist, what, what do you do all day? So, I mean, <clears throat> this is a great uh, opportunity to, to plug anthropology. In North America, unlike here in Europe, uh, the anthropology is a, a rubric, uh, uh, label that covers a much broader area of expertise. So, for example, my two undergraduate degrees are in zoology and anthropology. Mm -hmm. um, and while that may sound strange to many, it's quite a logical trajectory for a kind of North American anthropology that seeks to think through the behavior, the culture, the history of humanity 
and combine that with an understanding of the physiology of body, the bodies and ecologies. And so connecting those two things together is sort of the underlying, my, my joie de vivre uh, yeah. in an academic sense. And because I'm interested in the human, I am also interested in other primates. Humans are primates. We're part of the world in that way. And so to really contextualize what is distinctive and fascinating about humanity, I need to understand where humans sit in relationship to not just their closest cousins, but to the broader landscapes. And so that training, this is what I bring to bear on understanding human distinctiveness in context and by comparison with others. Mm. And uh, you know, I, I, I sort of, I'm imagining, you know, maybe a sort of situation like, I don't know, a James, is it James Franco and Rise of the Planet of the Apes? You know, you're sitting around with it, you're, you're, you're resident. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think there's something that's really important to point out. First of all, the original uh, Planet of the Apes movies are fantastic because they have subtext and they're situated in a political moment. These recent remakes are just not very good, but you know. Um, but but so, so what does one do when doing primate studies? Yeah. One watches the primates. One tries to get insight into their day-to-day interactions, their relationships, the massive social complexity of their day-to-day lives. And that actually informs us a lot about what we as humans have as our base. If we understand what primates are, we don't need to explain why humans are so social, why, why relationships are so central to our being. That's because we're primates. Hmm. However, we are particularly distinctive. We are the strangest of all the primates. And there lies in, therein lies, I think, the really interesting questions about humanity. How do we differ from everything else? Yeah. So watching primates is, 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 is a very good training for, I think, scholarly endeavors, because it usually means spending hours after hours after hours, piling on more hours of sitting watching other organisms. And most organisms, unlike humans, actually relax most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of the time, they're really not doing that much. So it, it, it takes a lot of uh, perseverance to do field work. Yeah. And then I guess you get a lot of thinking time yeah. in there as well. Um, so you said um, there about, about primates and humans being distinctive, um, maybe you could, that, that's a nice way to yeah. move in. Just so I think there's something that's really important here, and, and this is critical. When, when I'm, I'm an evolutionary scientist, so I'm interested in the broad, sort of the long array mm. of, of human history, uh, and that's millions and millions of years. When thinking about evolutionary processes, people tend to take one of two sides, either the continuity emphasis, which is very, um, it's very hip, right now. Everyone wants to place humans as connected to everything else, yeah. which we are. Absolutely. That is a fact. However, the interesting stories in evolution are not just about connectedness, but also about discontinuities because evolution is about branching and changing. So we have common ancestors, but then we diverge and each lineage changes unto itself in particularly distinctive and important ways. And so when I ask questions about the human, I'm very interested in knowing what our baseline is by looking at other primates, but much more interested in those distinctive changes that occurred across our specific lineage mm. and how that influences what we can know and think about the human. And so that, that's the distinctive aspect. Yeah. Um, but you have to understand the continuities to be able to really talk about the distinctions. Yeah. And well, you call that in your, um, in your lecture series, the human niche, yes. the development of the human niche. Um, so, um, and then that's connected to this broader question right. of why we believe. Um, but perhaps 
that's a good way for us to go if you could tell us like what is yeah. this this human niche and how has it developed and maybe some of its key characteristics so what, what's really incredible is to think in an evolutionary way is to also to think in an ecological way but also a, a deeply philosophical way so Jakob von Uxko the, the philosopher and biologist provided us with the conceptualization of the umwelt the life world of an organism mm-hmm. each organism is distinctive in the way in which they are in the world and so understanding us humans in our umwelt in a contemporary context, is to think through our niche. Niches are these complex ecological, behavioral, historical ways in which we are in the world. So the human niche, the one I'm most interested in, is the last two million, developed over the last two million years over the evolution of our genus, the genus Homo. We are today Homo sapiens sapiens. So the evolutionary trajectory over the last two million years of our particular lineage involves changes in bodies, behavior, genes, neurobiologies, and ecologies. And observing the material remains, both in the physical, in the bones, and in the materials left behind over time, allows us to attempt to reconstruct the patterns and processes of the development of the human niche. Today, our niche is this unbelievably complicated Mm -hmm. reality that is challenging and enticing to study. Um, But to really think about contemporary humanity, from my perspective, one should examine the ways in which the niche has changed over time, the bits and pieces. So, for example, the critical extension of the human childhood, Mm. the fact that we are born with less than 40% of our brain developed, that is absolutely unique for all mammals. So our brain growth is very, very extended and very plastic, and thus the teaching, the social, the nurturing, the inculcating in becoming human is a central part of our niche, much more so than any other animal. Mm. So from the very first breath we take, the social, the interaction, the communal is central in the physical and the experiential and the perceptual. Exactly. Um, and and in, I think it was maybe in the third, the third lecture you were talking about, you know, even things like storage, like the, the development of storage and how, how that has affected things. I, I would never have thought of that um, in terms of being a major evolutionary. Um, well, I think, I think people uh, underplay what evolutionary processes are. Yeah. Everyone tends to think if there's a large thing trying to eat you, and if you're not eaten, all right, and you successfully produce offspring, then you win. Uh, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. Evolutionary processes, all of the dynamics that go into long-term change across bodies, behaviors, genomes, and ecologies. And so understanding those dynamics is critical. And in humans, it's not just about the localized ecologies or behaviors. It's also about the way in which we've reshaped our world. Mm. Humans are the only species, not the only species, but a species that has a major hand in creating its own ecologies that then feed back and create us. And so we bring up storage, well, things of domestication, storage, the alteration of environments. Here we are sitting in a beautiful room surrounded by history, yeah. right? And, and a bunch of wood and cement and metal and, and electrical light. All of those things are part and parcel of the construction of the human niche. And so by looking backward, we can identify storage, uh, particular patterns of stone tool use, earlier technologies, the move to bronze and metals. All of these things have huge influences in how humans interface in the world, which then feeds back on how we perceive and experience the world. Wonderful. So that brings us I think, you know, we're we're already getting on in time. Um, So we need to get to this notion of belief and then how this relates to everything. So belief in religious studies is a, well, in in everything is a contested, contested term. Um, How are you understanding belief, first of all? So this is really important because um, I want to be absolutely clear. I believe 
that belief, right, in the way I'm structuring it and deploying it here, is the human capacity to imagine, to be creative, to hope and dream, to fuse the world with meanings, and to cast our aspirations far and wild. What wild? Far and wide. Um, it's a commitment, an investment, a devotion to possibilities. So belief is a human capacity that has emerged over our evolutionary histories to take our cognitive, social, communal, historical, and ecological processes to include what we can call detached representation or offline thinking, the imaginary, to combine those such that the imaginary, even the transcendent, can become part of the physical, the perceptual, and the material in our niche. Using belief that way, it is not only about religious engagement. Mm -hmm. It is a capacity of the human. And I use the argument that, that belief is not some emergent thing in the mind floating above our heads. The belief is like the fingers on our hand. It is a part and parcel of the human system that has been modified over evolutionary history and that it is critical in our interface with the world and with each other. Okay. Um, I, want to, I want to push on that towards the end, um, but that'll be like a sort of final um, question that our listeners would not forgive me for yeah. uh, not asking. Um, so with that in mind then, so how, how, how did we develop this? Yeah, Where did yeah. this come from? So, I mean, early on, so we can talk about many other, let's just use other primates or cetaceans, very complex social mammals, have this incredibly deep social reality. And part of their making it in the world, their, their umwelt, their niches, are about social engagement and the social relationships. So that's a baseline for humans. Humans take that one step further by invoking the capacity of a particular kind of imaginary that is, we can see in items the possibilities of other items. We can take a stone and see inside that stone is a stone tool. We can see relationships and imagine how they could be, even though they're not that way at the moment. And so this perceptual capacity enables us to do what we could call cognitive and behavioral prospecting, to imagine into the future the way the world could be, the way that we might want it to be, an attempt to make that into material reality. That over evolutionary history, we see in the material remains, ramping up more and more with the evidence of not just making tools that are functional so that we can live, but creating items of meaning mm. and using those items of meaning to feed back, to create and ramp up the complex cumulative cultural changes that have happened over our histories. So meaning making is a central outcome of the capacity for belief. Mm. Yes, you were, you were commenting on like these structures that have clearly taken generations upon generations to be to be built and don't seem to serve any um, obvious function and things like well, that. I think that's really important because we say they don't seem, that's the sort of functional talk, this reductive yeah. notion of, well, everything must, if it doesn't serve a function, it must be magic or ritual. <laughs> and, and what I'd like to do is sort of push against that very directly by saying, no, this is part of the human experience. These things that we say are not, for making food or for housing, you know, humans or some clear, obvious function. We don't need to be reductive about the human experience because the human experience denies a total reduction. It is always more than the sum of its parts. And so if we acknowledge that that capacity, these multi-generational building projects that mean something for those populations mm -hmm. that have impact, not just on their perception, but on their bodies and their, their lives and how they see and experience the world. That is important. It just is not reduced to the material elements or some specific function. Exactly. And we've got, we in quotation marks have an awful tendency to, you know, if we're looking at other cultures or things in the past to go, well, there's a symbol right. um, that must be 
their religion must be, yeah. you know, that must be ritual. Whereas if, you know, here, you know, outside there'll be uh, the Scottish flag, the Saltire, the St. Andrew's Cross. <laughs> no one goes, well, that's a religious symbol, but that's, but we have a tendency when looking into the past. And, and here is very, very important. And I, I make a, a very explicit argument of differentiating belief, re- the capacity to be religious and religion. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, it's very important. There's many, many scholarly intellectual arguments that could push against this in valid ways. But in an evolutionary sense, you must make this distinction. So I invoke Clifford Geertz when I talk about the capacity to be religious, defining religious as the use of one's capacity for belief in the context of becoming with particular perceptual, experiential, and agential practices involving the transcendent that act to establish powerful, persuasive, and long-lasting moods and motivations that may be, but are not necessarily, tied to specific formal doctrines, practices, texts, or institutions. And in that way, I argue that it is inherent as an outcome and a part of the process of our capacity for belief that humans have the capacity to be religious. Mm. And I think anyone worth their salt looking at our history says humans have been and are religious. Yeah. Religions, however, I have to separate off in my engagement with the long array of human evolutionary history because contemporary religions defined as follows. The formal coalition of religious beliefs and practices and the material symbols and structured institutions that unite them into a single community via specific theological doctrine and ritual. And that's borrowing from Durkheim. Mm -hmm. The reason I do that is because our contemporary religions as institutions have histories, have texts, have theologies, but those do not have very deep roots from my perspective. That is, they don't go back. We can't find anything that really connects them clearly, materially more than 8,000, 68,000 years ago. That means, what do I do with the other 2 million years? Yeah. And so, for me, there's clear evidence of meaning-making, of absolute commitment to an importance of the transcendent experience in the human well before 68,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. For me, I see this as the capacity to be religious, as an openness to these possibilities that has, in our current times, formalized in particular institutional and theological practices. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, The Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. Exactly. Um, and there, you know, I can jump in and go, well, whoa. Why you ask the question? Why do we believe? Mm-hmm. You can also ask why do we not believe? There are you know plenty around who would probably bristle at you. You say I'm a believer, isn't yeah. you know? So I think that's great, and I, they, people should bristle because they're ignorant. When I say belief, and here I don't mean to be insulting, but I think it's very important to point out that what I am talking about is not the human association with a particular institution or a history or even a particular theology or philosophy. What I'm talking about is a human capacity to be with, 
to experience awe, to have the transcendent perceptions influence the way in which we are in life. All humans have that capacity. How we choose to engage with it, how we choose to deploy it, and what histories and structures we enable to come forth from that, I think that's a very good question. The problem today is we're in this mode, this contemporary moment, where the politics of aggression between different patterns and traditions of faith and practice have incredible salience. So the new atheist, for example, would argue that all religion is delusion. To that I respond, so, you know, 83%, so let's say 6.2 billion human beings are idiots? No. No, 6.2 billion human beings are doing what humans do and participating in an incredible opportunity to deploy their capacity to be religious alongside particular institutions, theologies, and faith traditions. Other humans who do not belong to those faith traditions are actually doing it in different ways. Exactly. Everyone has this capacity. And so I think the argument stemming from ignorance that we should be envisioning the human as without access to the transcendent, to all, to that broader experience is dangerous because it cuts us off from what we know has been one of the keys to our success in the past. Exactly. And... The, the, the danger then um, with this, this sort of talk um, can be that um, we, we lose that we're talking about capacity. Mm-hmm. We're not saying whether there is a transcendent, right. um, but sometimes people when, you know, I imagine a lot of people even you're listening to your lectures will be sitting there going, that, you know, this proves that God is real and things like that. Well, and this is the wonderful thing that, that again, stems from this really interesting jumping to conclusions and not thinking things through. Um, you cannot prove faith. That is the point of it. Faith is felt and is real. That's the entire reason it works. It is real. And so whatever the faith practices that you engage in, if they are not real for you, if you have to find some sort of you know mathematical equation, then I have to ask, well, what is it that you're seeking? And it might be something else. So I think these are great debates to have. I think they're very important. And I think we have to distinguish institutional religion from the capacity to be religious or from most, from what most people do day in and day out. Because religious institutions, like political institutions and economic institutions, have histories and histories that are often fraught with really complex and problematic realities. But that doesn't mean they're static and they don't change. And we know today making a difference in the world without participating with religions is going to be impossible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yes, it, it belies the, this myth, the, the division between the religious and the secular that there is. And, and you mentioned the new atheist, you know, like, yeah, so they talk as if they're completely 100% empirical and rational all of the time and that they have no quote faith commitments unquote and you know they don't do anything based on tradition or intuition or emotion and 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 to be to be honest you know that's an extreme version and only a few are like the vast majority of people are not and they recognize if you make such a dogmatic assertion you are in fact demonstrating faith Mm -hmm. that's exactly the point you are demonstrating a belief system And, and I think that's Something that just needs to be recognized. And, and let's go back to what you said about sort of the religious versus secular realities. Most of the world 
even today, does not have that division. And up until very recently, that division did not exist. Mm -hmm. People are in the world, and the experience of awe, the potentially transcendent, are part of the daily lives. Um, we now have divided politically this notion that, well, there's faith traditions, and then there's the rest of your life. And that's just a very strange way to be human and quite atypical even today. Exactly. So I mentioned earlier, I was going to sort of push you on, on the notion of belief. So mm -hmm. yeah, you've, you've got this very nuanced, um, non-theological um, definition that you use, but um, I imagine that many people coming to your work bring with them the sort of folk understanding of the term belief. They, um, which is quite a quote Protestant unquote <laughs> um, words. Um, so why use why use that word? You know, is there a danger that the, the work that you're doing is sort of tainted by association with the word? Yes, I mean there is that danger, but I think it's a risk that's worth taking because I think belief is powerful. You could say, you know, why don't you just stick with imagination? Right? Well, but imagination isn't the whole picture; it's a component of believe. Well, why don't you just stick with humans' capacity to uh, have detached mental representation? Like, well, that's one tool, one process within this larger system of belief. And I think it's actually very important that we recognize that belief is a human capacity, as I've outlined here, that is deployed in many different instances. Now, I think it particularly resonate, it resonates particularly well with many theological and philosophical engagements because philosophers and particularly theologians have been asking about belief. That is, that's, that's, that's their forte. They're interested in that area. Whereas other people, say economists, pretend they're not talking about belief. Exactly. And I think that's the danger. The idea that economic systems or political systems reflect reality not belief systems is a threat to the potential for humans to navigate those. Mm. And you just hit on, um, so my postdoctoral project, I, I've used the word unbelief in the title. Um, so I, I, yeah, I'm interested in all those people who um, want to distance themselves from, uh, I'll say religion, but the word unbelief, it, it's, it's nicely... It's nicely slippery in that it covers so much. Whereas if you, I, I previously used non-religion, but then you're, then you're into a binary and it's very systematized. I love unbelief. I think that's fantastic. I'm going to place that in with one of my, and I will, uh, with, with acknowledgement to use this <laughs> and place it with another one of my uh, favorite phrases, which is incurious. Mm -hmm. So I think using unbelief is critical because that's a political act. Yeah. Right. To say, I am not participating in belief. I am doing this. Mine is reality. Yours is not. That's a political statement. Anyone who tells you humans are rational and reasonable when they get rid of the capacity for this perceptual experience of the more than the material is wrong. <laughs> and they're trying to sell you something. They're, they know as a human being what they can experience and have experienced. And so when they argue that, no, this is the rational reality versus your reality, uh, they're trying to sell you a bill of goods. Exactly. So we're coming up on time. Your final, um, your final lecture is tonight. Um, so I haven't heard that yet. But you know, so what's so what's your big conclusion going to be? Your big admonition? 
Well, um, give us a taste. So I, I, I facetiously titled it Can Belief Matter? Everyone knows the answer is yes. But what I really mean, and I'll go into more detail, is can we make belief truly matter in the 21st century when we are on the precipice of so many catastrophic issues for not just humans, but the whole planet? How do we then engage the scientific, the religious, the political, the economic in dialogue so that we can do what so many of us want, and that is to move forward on the planet in ways that are sustainable, as equitable as possible, compassionate and caring, in spite of all the problems. We're not going to get rid of inequality and warfare and horrors, but we can manage them probably more effectively than we are now. And I would like to suggest, and I think many philosophers and theologians have been saying this for quite some time, that it is through belief through the patterns and processes of diverse belief systems and the individual abilities to believe, to commit, to hope, to imagine that we have a better chance. And if we ignore that and we try to trust in just particular political or economic systems to push forward or our creativity and our ingenuity, and it's gotten out of us, it's gotten us out of problems before, it'll work in the future. I, I cannot see that as turning out well. Mm. Fantastic. And, uh, um, one of the more pervasive and problematic discourses that one hears in uh, in the UK context, and I'm sure in the States and elsewhere, is that uh, it's not polite to talk about, well, it's like sex, religion, and politics. Um, if we don't talk about sex, religion, politics, and race, <laughs> we are duped. Exactly. And that, that is how, that's how ideologies get. Absolutely. And the, the power of ideologies are when they go truly unchallenged. Exactly. Uh, well, hopefully um, this interview has uh, helped um, spark um, some conversations and some ideas. Um, as I said, listeners, you can check out the full series um, by going to the link um, in the podcast page or just searching for Edinburgh Gifford Lectures 2018 or for Augustine Fuentes. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Oh, this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much for that, Chris. We've had a wee run of uh, of being co-hosts and interviewers yeah, recently. It's, it's getting back to the old days, back to 2012. Do you know what it is? It's because our team is so strong now in terms of doing, you know, we don't have to concentrate on editing the episodes, running the website, all that kind of stuff. We can focus on this part and doing interviews exactly. which is great for me because I like doing that. Ah, and it's been nice yeah, to get uh, get behind the microphone in that sense again and uh, listeners will hopefully not even notice that um, we recorded that interview in New College at the University of Edinburgh and we recorded it over 11am on a Thursday which is when the fire alarm goes off so Augustine was in uh, full flow um, when the fire alarm went off, but um, he was real professional. We rewound the conversation, and I edited it out as if nothing happened. Brilliant. Uh, I'm talking about as if nothing has happened. Hopefully, the website's stable now. We talked about that last week, but just it's just a reminder uh, that the podcasts are always available on YouTube and iTunes. Yeah. If you can't, so if you go to the site in the middle, you're teaching a class and you're relying on it being there, just search on YouTube. It'll yeah. be there. Imagine if users uh, 
of the podcast are using podcasts in the way that I do. I mean, I don't ever really go to the website of any of the podcasts I listen to or get them through um, various apps. So you may be blissfully unaware that we're having yeah. website issues. Um, I get mine to an RSS reader, actually, and yeah, they've all worked perfectly. But what I have noticed is that since we've started having the transcriptions each week, that quite often I'll, in the, the interviews that are maybe less um, on my topic, I'll skim through the, the transcript now and read those, um, which is a different way of engaging with them entirely. Um, and I, I'm really enjoying that. So yeah. thanks to Helen Bradstock for her amazing work transcribing these. Absolutely. And importantly, thanks to the uh, Patreon uh, subscribers. I think we're up to 20 now who are helping to support that and essentially bringing those transcriptions to all of you. So uh, thanks to them. And please do consider signing up for Patreon. Once we get the next few few weeks out of the way, we'll be doing a a big, big Patreon push. I've been promising this since about January. Um, So hopefully we'll get those numbers up a little bit. But thanks to those 20. Um, Thanks also to the BASR. Uh, We mentioned a couple of weeks ago the joint conference with the Irish Society that's coming up in September. And for BASR members, and you can, of course, join, um, become a member to apply for this, um, bursaries are being made available. We always make a few bursaries uh, available each year for the attendance at the conference. It covers uh, full full boards and the whole conference, but not your travel, basically. And um, I say we offer a few. Um, in previous years, it's been three, four. Um, Wolverhampton, we actually gave eight, I believe. Um, so it does depend on how the finances are sitting and how just on the, the strength of the applications and recommendation letters. But if you if you were thinking about coming to the conference and finances were proving an issue, um, do look on the BASR website for the bursary form. You've got till the end of May to apply. For it really is worth doing. It's a great opportunity, and the BASR is a very warm and easy first toe in the water of of academic conferences and stuff um it's what chris and i both did we both had bursaries so did lots of the people who appear on this mm-hmm. uh podcast a lot you know sammy and beth just off the top of my head jonathan yeah, Suzanne, I uh, well, yeah but uh, yeah further back i think pretty much everybody in the committee is, has has yeah. been a recipient at some point and um, so i would urge you to consider if that's a possibility and on, just on that note, um, I was speaking to Steve Sutcliffe the other day, and he was saying how he was you know, thrilled to be, uh, I guess, presiding um, his, his final conference as BSR president is going to be this historic joint conference with the Irish Society, and, and the first conference that the BSR has had in Northern Ireland, um, the, the fourth constituent nation or region of the United Kingdom. It's also going to be a, a, hyster- a hysteric and historic uh, Christmas special um, as we welcome the return of reigning champion supreme Carol Cusack. I've got some uh, big plans. <laughs> Fantastic. Speaking about returning people. We're smooth today. This is um, we've got a few people returning uh, to the RSP next week. I'm returning as interviewer. And I'm speaking to Brad Stoddard and Craig Martin about um, stereotypes about religion, critiquing 
popular cliche is they've got a book um, that came out a few months ago with Bloomsbury called Stereotyping Religion. The book sort of uh, takes a lot of the common cliches about religion. Religion's all about peace. Religions are all about belief. Um, religion is bullshit. Um, and all religions are inherently violent, things like that. And, and you know, historicize these cliches and, um, and critique them effectively. Um, so Brad was um, has done a number of interviews for us. So this is his first time on on the mm. being interviewed side, and Craig has also appeared speaking about um, religion and capitalism. I believe it was um, a couple of years ago, and they've also both appeared on roundtables on the RSB. So that's a really fun interview. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's a really excellent book. Um, which I'm reviewing elsewhere at the moment. But, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to this episode. Um, yeah, I think, I think we're, we're done. I'm going to let you say it. Okay. Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The RSP is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SCO 47750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and our managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.